Hello. Last week, we talked with Jason Sean, who is both film critic for Nashville Scene and a longtime employee of the Belcourt Theater. This week, we continue with the Nashville movie theme uh, by talking with Toby Leonard. Toby is the program director for the Belcourt. We also talk with writer and private investigator and educator Veronica Cavas about her love for that very theater. This is Nashville Demystified. I'm Alex Steed. Every week I talk with a relatively new Nashvillian about something I'd like to understand further. And then I talk with someone who's been here longer and presumably an expert in that area. Nashville Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory and we own this town. Knack Factory is a commercial video and content production firm in Nashville. We own this town is a collective of podcasters based in Nashville. One show uh, that is also in the network you might enjoy is Liquid Gold, which is about beer, wine, cocktails, coffee, and all things in between. So I said this before, um, I started the show as a means of getting to know the city, its history, and the people in it. I'm a new Nashvillian myself, and so this is more or less an ongoing challenge to push myself to understand where it's been and where it's going, uh, the city that is. I've already met some incredible and awesome people by producing the show. I'm excited to announce some upcoming collaborations with these folks. Increasingly, though, I'm realizing that producing the show is as much about better understanding the city I moved here from, which is Portland, Maine. People talk a lot about how Nashville is changing, and you'll hear that on almost every episode of the show so far. You'll probably hear it on every episode moving forward. Portland has gone through a similar trajectory with rumblings about the coming change beginning to emerge at the end of the 90s, a noticeable shift in neighborhoods and character from 2010 to about 2012, and then an accelerated form of gentrification that left a lot of Portlanders my age, I'm in my mid-30s, and people who are older feeling like the friend they had in the city had changed considerably. Uh, This is imagery I actually borrow from Veronica Cavass, by the way, who is on this show, but I talk with her greater length in next week's episode and she's going to introduce the Belcourt shortly but in coming to Nashville um, a city going through something very similar it's given me a lens through which I can look at my own former home and to understand that 20-year shift a bit better so case in point while I respect and appreciate all the efforts Portland has made since losing its own art house theater or theaters I guess um I didn't realize how truly I'd missed having a theater of this sort close by until going to the Belcourt for the first time and uh, other times since. For the Portlanders listening, uh, a huge shout out to hometown hero John Courtney for doing everything he's done in every venue he's collaborated with to keep new, inventive, and cinema alive back home. I know there are other folks who are doing the same, uh, but John is a beacon in my eyes. Um, But damn, having... Walked into the Belcourt and seen the programming they have available from 9 to 5, which I've talked about here in the past, to Joe Bob Briggs' Midnight Movie Marathons, to, as you'll hear about later in this interview, a grim four-hour Chinese films about the impacts of industrialization. I instantly fell in love with and felt a sense of longing for the institutions my Portland had lost in the first wave of changes that hit the city at the turn of the century. But enough from me on that. Uh, Here's what Veronica had to say about why the Belcourt is meaningful to her. And I should note that Veronica is today's quote, new Nashvillian though, reflecting the incredibly complicated nature of that term. She's not new at all. She's originally from the city. She was raised here and bounced around a bit as a teenager. And then again, over the past decade, 
but she's back here and writing a book about the city's outsiders. Um, and so she's not, in fact, a new Nashvilleian in the traditional sense, but labels are tricky like that, aren't they? So here's Veronica. Um, my name is Veronica Kavas, and I'm a private investigator and writer and teacher based in Nashville. And I'm also a cinephile. And one of the best things about Nashville is the Bell Court, which is a nonprofit independent movie theater that's been around since, I mean, since I was a kid. Mm. And ha I've seen it go through all its transitions. Um, there was a time where it was almost going to be no more and there was a there are people with save bell court stickers on their cars and there's this massive resurgence i think that's when it became a nonprofit. now it's just it's one of the places in nashville that's doing very well and i'm very happy about that yeah. what does i mean what is the significance of a theater like that and again i you know the the, the contrasts are many but like i came from a city where the, our last art house theater died 10 years ago just died on the vine and i didn't realize i think i realized like how conceptually important it is but i didn't realize until i came to a place that had one that i was like oh my god this yeah is heaven <laughs> uh what is the significance of a theater like that it does show that there are enough people in the city that want to go see these strange stories that are revealed in independent films um, that are often disturbing too, <laughs> and that there's such a there seems to be so many people here that want to go see them and then talk about them. That does say there's there's something going on. There's like a thinking that's happening here. I just see indie cinemas that do well in cities, especially the size of Nashville, mean there is some sort of intellectual pulse, mm. and that one is very um, that one's moving at a pace that I like. Yeah. It's, I, I, I had the luxury of talking to a handful of, of uh, uh, the employees and longtime employees. I mean, people have been there since the late 90s or early 2000s. And um, what I found interesting is like they – maybe it's because they're – you know when you're like into something, you're in something and you're in the minutia of the day-to-day -day and like really like your day-to-day -day is just like – Oh, I just want this person to respond to this fucking email or whatever, or whatever the thing is that you just aren't aware of, like how culturally significant you are. Right. I know. <laughs> I was just like in awe of you. I was like, thank you for everything you do. And they're like, honestly, it's just like, yeah, know, if I could just get this distributor to return my call, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> yeah. They're doing God's work in a way. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's important. What was the last, um, like, but it doesn't even have to be the last one. Like what was like the, your most moving, Belcourt experience. Oh, that is a rough one to pin down. Well, I will say the last one I went to was really great. It was a silent film. Um, it was a night where they had a series of silent films that they were playing that were mostly from the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. And they had live music accompanying it, mm. a sort of electronic uh, um, music that just played along to these films. So it was like about an hour or so of just sort of watching and then hearing the way this music corresponded to it i thought this is really great this is a and this is very kind of nashville to to bring a band in or really i don't know if they were really a band they were different independent electronic musicians sure. but i thought that was that was really cool um this is cheesy but i saw requiem for a dream there mm. when i was a senior in high school and there was something about that movie when i saw it it just made me want to be a movie 
person. Yeah. It was it was the thing that made me kind of want to be a filmmaker. And I'm not one, but it's it might happen. And I've worked on movies before. Sure. So strangely, it was that film. And now when I look at that movie, not that I do very often, I'm kind of like, really? Yeah. That's the one that got me into film and like Dogma 95 and everything oh, else, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, of course. But it was. So that would have been a... Um, a turning point moment for me, but I've just seen so many movies there that I, I feel like you would not ever be able to see at any major um, movie theater. And they, it's one of the places where I can go and feel satisfied, even if the movie's bad, which I've seen plenty of bad movies there too. Um, I just like, that's one of my fixes yeah. in Nashville's Bell Court. I think that's like I think that's a thing that like either you get that or you don't, and a lot and, and people who don't get it, it's fine. But like I always think about the fact that I think I know exact that exact moment. I remember seeing Requiem in the Dream for a Dream in the theater. I remember like it being my exposure to understanding the Kronos Quartet. I remember it being like mm-hmm. so many different things. I remember like the seats I was in. Like I remember all that, and to think that. At the very least, at the end of the day, with the thousand or so movies that they play in a year and sort of give space that don't get space 99% of the time, just to think about, like, if they just moved that one kid, you know, to be like, oh, there's a bigger, more important world outside here. Yeah. You're like, you're do- you are honestly doing God's work. Like, <laughs> Totally. <laughs> that's more important than most of the things people say they're doing in the name of something bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. If Belcourt wasn't here, I would do- I would not be here. Yeah. That's uh, part of the thing that's keeping me in this city. <laughs> ringing endorsement. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> So the Bell Court. The Bell Court housed the first incarnation of the Grand Ole Opry in the mid-30s. It was the first home after it grew out of an exclusively uh, radio phenomenon. It opened, it being the theater, opened 10 years beforehand and began dabbling in art, experimental, and documentary films in the late 90s, as I understand it, though I I could be wrong. Um, I'm sorry if I am. Uh, In 2007, it was bought by a nonprofit coalition of art-loving weirdos who kept that trajectory growing and going um, ever since. Criterion recently acknowledged it as one of their favorites. Videoport, which was a legendary video store in Portland that got taken up by the confluence of gentrification and streaming a handful of years back, housed a robust inventory of Criterion films, uh, partially housed under their incredibly strange film section, partially uh, eventually under its own section, um, that I reveled in uh, during my teens and my 20s, and I just learned so much from that. I learned what was possible. Um, I covet places like the Bell Court down here and the work of curators and organizers organizers and advocates like John Courtney, who I mentioned before up in Portland for exactly this reason. They're making possible that spark, that self-recognition for other weirdos who haven't yet experienced it. And they're keeping that spark alive and fostering that flame in those who have. Anyway, I talked with Toby Leonard, who's been uh, with the theater for nearly 20 years and now serves as their programming director. Toby is behind selecting many of the films that play there and doing the work necessary to get access to them. Um, If you've ever had to do this for one movie, you realize this is a monumental task, let alone um, hundreds to thousands. And as far as I can tell from our conversation, um, he isn't as weird about thinking that he does God's work (laughs) as I am about it, but here we are. 
Like a lot of Nashvillians, he's warm and laid back uh, with a wry sense of humor. He'll talk about pretty much anything you ask about. Um, but before we get to Toby, uh, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Consider giving it a review if you can. Please, please, please. That helps. Sharing uh, with a friend also helps. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nashville Demystified, and we're on the man who thinks he should make decisions about what people who are not men can and should do with their bodies. That is Facebook. If you have any feedback you want to send to me directly or ideas about future shows, you can reach me at podcast at knack-factory.com, which is actually podcast at knack-factory.com. That's it. Here's Toby. How did you come in through um, the work, your work with the Belcourt? Um, okay, so back in 1999, this theater was dark mm-hmm. for about a year and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, a childhood friend of mine, Julia Sutherland, started a group to try and save it because at the, at the time they were, you know, they wanted to knock the place down, turn it into a Walgreens. Who the fuck knows what they were going to do with it? <laughs> but uh, at any rate, she, I got involved with with her when they reopened it and I kind of at the time I'd been working in like food service stuff and and so I just came over here and kind of helped do evening management run the place and uh, eventually just came over here full-time and for a few years from like 2000 when we reopened in 2000 to about 2002 I was doing mostly management but also dealing with the amount of rentals which we had that we had started to accrue which is a pretty regular thing here we do a lot of theater rentals just even stuff that nobody ever sees orthodontists in there looking at teeth on screen you know just some gnarly shit like that um you should consider selling additional tickets yeah and and also like during those times we're really trying to we didn't really nobody involved in ever run a movie theater before so we're really just doing a whole lot of different things to try and make the place work we we were doing a lot more concerts then we had you know but Nashville's is no shortage for 300 seat rooms. So eventually that kind of became less and less of a priority as time went on. But I guess it was sometime around 2004, um, my job morphed into programming. There was another guy who had been doing, doing it at that time um, for whatever reason, it just kind of, they, the two jobs just grew together. And I've kind of been, I guess I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. Is there an advantage to you collectively not having had experience? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what any level of experience would have brought to the table other other than maybe just a little bit more more or less expectation on what what certain things are going to do, what certain films are going to do about others. But I think maybe if I had any leg up whatsoever is because I'm a Nashville native mm-hmm. and um, maybe that helped. Yeah, because there's I, like 20 of you, right? Like yeah, 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 you can count them on your fingers <laughs> and toes. It's like a high council from like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. You know what? Um, but yeah, I guess if there's anything about it, you know, I, I grew up coming to movies here, and and um, you know, 
I don't know. I guess maybe knowing the space, knowing the city. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, what, I mean, what do you think? Do you remember? So, so in that time from like 99 to like the mid 2000s, mm-hmm. do you remember? Do you remember at what point like the personality of this place started to take shape? Hmm. Well, I mean, the, the personality of the building itself is, has been around for a long time. As for what our group brings to it, I mean, I think we always had a, uh, a uh, sense of um, where we wanted to go. We knew we wanted to be like a, a center where people can you know, gather and uh, discuss and relate to film and, and have it be just kind of a conversation place where this, that can all happen. Of course, key to understanding what's going on in cinema today is what's going on in cinema yesterday and, and the whole history of it. So that's kind of why we ha- do as much repertory screenings as we do, meaning classics or, you know, in the case of nine to five when mm-hmm. you came recently. Um, so we always kind of knew that we wanted to have an active program of classics alongside the new release, the new releases, but it, it took us a little bit to get to the point to where we could afford it. Um, at first when we opened up, we had like one movie in one hall playing four times a day, one movie in the other hall playing four times a day, which is how all the multiplexes operate anyways. But, you know, some movies have no business playing on Tuesday at four o'clock, mm-hmm. you know? So eventually we just, we became more and more dynamic with our schedules and, um, and just showing more and more stuff. I think the first year I was a programmer of the theater, we showed 100 movies total. <laughs> um, now we're, I'm worth like four times that much yeah. these days. I, I think maybe last year was something in the in the upper 300s. Right. I wish I had the exact figures on me, but yeah. I can furnish them to you. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm sure that does no good for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a long meandering introduction. So. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Do you, what, can you just tell me like what this neighborhood is and what mm. it was like when you opened versus what's happening now? Yeah. Uh, well, where do you live? I live in Inglewood. Live in Inglewood. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say Hillsborough Village in the late 90s and 2000s was probably more akin to what maybe what Inglewood and East Nashville for that matter. It felt like in the last few years, if you take out all the development, right. um, it wasn't you know, the pace of development at that time in Nashville wasn't nearly as what it has been recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, we're between Belmont University and Vanderbilt University. Um, the residential neighborhood is, you know, the, the Belmont Hillsborough neighborhood is now a pretty, you would be hard-pressed to be able to afford a house in that mm-hmm. area unless you're doing very well. At the time, maybe you might have been able to, to, to do that. But, you know, again, that's 20 years ago. Um, the uh, Hillsborough Village, by and large, without this construction you see outside, has retained most of its character. Um, we lost some buildings. We lost Cotton Music. We lost uh, the boot play, Peabody Shoes. Uh, a bunch of places have gone out. And, and in their places have come some other, you know, some other... Um, franchises if you want to call them not necessarily chains but uh you know the yeah i mean the i guess the the funky and grittiness that this area might have had back then 
is not so much anymore. It's kind of moved around town. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that helps. No, it does yeah. for sure. And I think, I mean, I think like for a lot of people, like just the development over the past five years is hard to keep up with, let alone know what's happened in, yeah. in 20. Mm -hmm. Do, what does it mean to be, you know, both film focused and repertory film focused mm -hmm. in a city whose primary interest is almost exclusively music, at least from a business perspective? Like mm -hmm. what, does that, does that, change your focus any of your focus or sort of hone any of your focus or what is that i mean your the the history of this building itself is related to the city's musical history yeah that's true i mean you know from 1934 to 1936 we were the first stage of the grand Ole opry which yeah. started in a recording studio in a high-rise downtown mm -hmm. um at that that time they were just bringing people into the studio and that was their audience probably couldn't fit any more than 34 people 30 or 40 people in folding chairs i'm just imagining um but at that at that point this place was uh you know our main hall the 1925 hall was was had a balcony could seat a lot more people than it can now um but uh yeah i mean that that's heavily ingrained into our dna uh, maybe that results these days because we do particularly well with music-related films. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have Amazing Grace on screen, the Aretha Franklin concert <laughs> so film. Good. You see it? Yeah, it's out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot yeah, of tears. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, but you know, it's something like that for us will be a, a really good run. Right now, we're having. A, we're I think we're coming into our what third or fourth week with the film. Mm -hmm. And we're also like one of the highest grossing uh, runs in the country. Mm. The film's not a huge hit by any by by nationwide standards, um, but for us, it's doing quite well. And compared compared to all the other theaters in the country, evidently we're doing probably one of the top three runs of the film. So you know, music films definitely have a place here. They have for a long time. When you came to see Nine to Five the other day, that was on every Monday, almost every Monday. We have a music-related film. Maybe it's not a concert film. Maybe it's not a documentary. Maybe it's just got a number one hit like yeah. Nine to Five. That's yeah. enough to, or the in the end, like Dolly Parton in it. That's enough to say, oh, we can put that on Monday night. Yeah. Hey, we got to set it off mm -hmm. uh, in right. a week or two. And which I'm know, stoked about, by which, the way. <laughs> actually, yeah, which was like, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a heist movie, but it but it had like. You know, it had a platinum-selling soundtrack, and it stars Queen Latifah. Right. Put it on Monday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, music and film are really closely related. I, I think you know, you're talking about you're talking about form and yeah. uh, and aesthetics and um, and uh, sensuality of varying degrees. Um, you know, it, it's it's all. A, it's all a very, um, you know, personal experience. So, yeah. to me, it works together. Yeah. How did you? How did you get? Uh, how do you get into um, film in the first place? I mean, things were f finding what's available here was a fundamentally different experience twenty years ago than mm. it is now. Um, um, yeah, what was that like then? Well, I mean, at the time, you could see uh, you could see certain films showing up at at the Regal and Green Hills, for example. Mm -hmm. But it kind of only went so deep. Um, that was really where we stepped in, I think, mm -hmm. and still kind of exists to, to this day. 
but I mean, as far as me personally, yeah. I, I just, it's just kind of always been, mm-hmm. you know, a, a top interest of, of mine. I come from a music background, but yeah. like, you know, again, I think they're, they're very same as a natural progression for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. What I mean, what was what were the what were the movies then that sort of moved you to to know that that was special? Um, well, you mean like when I was a kid yeah, or something? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, I grew up so watching the same movies everybody else did, all yeah. Star Wars and Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark and that stuff. I put an age on me. I'm 45. Yeah. I don't mind saying. <laughs> um, but you know, like when I got you can put that down. It's not gonna okay. Yeah, when not gonna I got a, I'm gonna place down my coffee sure. cup here. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, I I can kind of point back to seeing blow up for the first time and realizing that, oh, there's some there's something more to this form that I've not been getting. I'm not sure I understood it at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking about Antonio's film from, I think, was it 19 something Um, late 60s, I guess, Uh, 66, maybe. but yeah, I mean that that was some that was a confounding experience. I watched it on VHS. I didn't, you know, didn't you know, it was just one series of things after another which, you know, eventually a plot came into focus and but yeah, I guess that was the one that kind of got me interested in different kinds of cinema and that was you know, again, that was something I pursued on my own and um yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess that was the genesis of part of this it's just I mean it's funny because it's like I, I I'm from rural Maine to like get to the good video store I literally had to hitchhike into a city <laughs> and they had a they, how romantic it was so good <laughs> they had a they had a uh, a incredibly strange film section which is what they called it which is where all the criterion stuff was until they broke out criterion stuff in its own place and that's how it's just thinking about you know over the course of like 20 25 years that's where I found like Black Orpheus, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Watch Black Orpheus, loved it. I recently sent Black Orpheus, the soundtrack that I found at a used record store and vinyl to my girlfriend's dad, who's a drummer and an academic. Uh. It inspired him to like get a turntable again and like sort of like, like so just thinking uh. about like the progression of like these movies and like how they impact us and like what that impact does to like everything around us is always fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, Black Orpheus is a great example. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like talk about like if you just like grew up like watching like what was available mm-hmm. and then you watch Black Orpheus right. and you're like, oh, this, right. is, this is novel. <laughs> I didn't know this, or Kids. Kids was, and, and I know that that has like, that has sort of local roots, but I remember like Kids was one of the first, uh, yeah. first movies that came out that was like popular, but it, certainly represented like another another option yeah kids was a wild thing i remember that playing here probably like a year or two after harmony graduated from high school right 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 right. at that that point he was you know um, at that point he'd been gone for a little bit but it felt like that anyways yeah i I mean i think you wrote it at 18 or 17 or something Mm -hmm. like that do you i mean what what is it like to focus on on film programming in a time where content is first of all called content mm-hmm. and second of all considered to be relatively like fleeting or ethereal or disposable yeah i mean it is isn't it i mean like you, you what was that movie that was uh on netflix like two months ago and it came out at sundance and everybody was talking about it and 
Oh man, and I've and, it, and it's I can't even remember the movie. <laughs> was it Velvet Buzzsaw? That was the movie. Okay. Did you see no, that? I don't even no. know what it is. It's gone into the <laughs> hole, man. I mean, you know, that's that's the disposal nature of of streaming. But you know, then without streaming, we wouldn't have a whole lot of other great stuff too. I mean, as far as there being too much stuff out there, yeah, maybe. Um, I. I feel like maybe we are we occupy a space that people can set the Roku player aside and and you know find something that is hopefully thoughtfully curated for them I'm not sure if curated is my preferred term but you know um, I don't know maybe, maybe just and neither is gatekeeper too. Mm. Both of them sound pretty arrogant. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't know. I mean, you know, you got to cut through the everything. Every Friday, twenty-five to forty films open in New York and/or Los Angeles. <laughs> that you know, back in there, pre, you know, prior to digital uh, filmmaking, that it was you know, I don't even know what it was. It was a fraction of that. Right. But nowadays, I mean, you know, you got to, okay, let's say if there, of those 25 films, starting with a conservative number, let's just say five of those are major wide releases, Avengers Endgame, whatever, maybe a kid's movie. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe another four or five of them are kind of like that specialty uh, art thing that we kind of have a foot in. And then... Another four or five are like, you know, serious films worth considering that we really should look at. And then the rest of them are just like going straight to, to uh, iTunes or whatever, but with a token theatrical release that somebody is paying for. Right. And that's a considerable amount. And then there's probably two or three Indian films in there, too, right. which right. that's a pretty major. There's a sizable market. Right. For uh, Bollywood stuff all over the USA, including here in Nashville at the Hollywood Twenty Seven, where they most of those wind up. But I guess you know, part of our job is to fork through everything that is uh, maybe worth showing, and and then refine that even further. So what you have by virtue of us only having three screens or two and a half, if you want to call it, because this, this upstairs one's pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that ultimately what we wind up with hopefully is kind of the cream of the crop of whatever's happening at any on any given month mm -hmm. so i with new films i try and open them within a month of new york and la because i you know if you wait if you go too early maybe you miss like the fresh air interview and the movie's already ended and, and you know and, and you get terry gross interviewing the filmmaker after we've already closed the movie and i get emails they're like hey why aren't you showing this i'm like man where were you last week <laughs> nobody came um, or or uh or if you wait too long there's just you know there's another every week there's another batch of movies that come out so you kind of have to set some boundaries and some spatial boundaries in terms of how we how we get everything out there and yeah. that's just talking about new releases yeah what's i mean what's the role of what's the role of a theater like this um that i mean like you said i mean there are movie theaters that you can go to and they sort of like release the movies that mm. people people go and watch because mm. they're they are sort of familiar or they're exciting or they're big or, or whatever mm -hmm. like what is 
what is the, the role of a theater that focuses on, I'd say, probably the 98% of <laughs> what doesn't get larger exposure? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think the role is just that. I mean, we're, we're a nonprofit. We exist in that realm that enables us to... Um, to show films that we know outright that maybe 20 people are going to come to. Um, we had a film last week called Elephant, Elephant Sitting Still. And, um, you know, it's a four-hour film. It doesn't have an intermission. It's, uh, it's set in rural China, in an industrial area. It's kind of bleak stuff, man. You know, I mean, we're not, you know, but it's the only film this dude ever made. He, he made the film and committed suicide for some reason. But at any rate, I mean, we, we identify a film, that, this film, and we want to show it, so we did it. And, you know, and, and we're right, you know, it's less than 40 people showed up to see it, and that's fine, because those 40 people probably got, you know, a little corner of their brain tickled, you know? Mm -hmm. right. And I guess that's, I guess that is the, the other end of the economic scale. So, I mean, you can look at it in terms of, this movie does really well and it pays for us to do this. Mm -hmm. Or these Bachelor movies. Last year we had a major, major hit with the Mr. Rogers documentary, mm -hmm. Won't You Be My Neighbor, which was a major hit everywhere. But it's not often that a documentary is the one that carries your entire summer, right. you know? So I can look at it and say, oh yeah, look, we made all this money with Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is gonna pay for <laughs> Gonna pay for the depressing Chinese movie, you know. I, I don't know. Which I mean, Mr. Rogers, I'm sure, would be stoked. Oh, like, he'd be totally you. stoked. You know? Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd love that. Yeah. I, that's that's an extreme example, and I'm kind of like, you know, maybe not doing do, fair, treat, fair <laughs> treating the Chinese film so fairly by making that comparison. But you know, we we do strike, we do keep a balance between showing the stuff that we feel like people. Or should see and the stuff that's going to kind of keep our doors open. Yeah. What what excites you about doing this? Um, I just discovery of of stuff. You know, yeah. the discovery of seeing new films, um, the rediscovery of watching old films. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's just seeing a film I haven't seen in forever. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to come to nine to five, didn't make it that night, but uh, you know. I would have loved to have seen it. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. It, it's, it, it, it's, at the same time, while there's this entire history of cinema that may be a little bit overwhelming to imagine pulling from, you can kind of set certain, you know, you can kind of hone in on certain things and, you know, and focus on those for a little bit before moving on to something else. This month, we have a Cassavetti series going on on the weekends. It's been on my list for, for years I've been wanting to show these movies. But, you know, we also try and adapt to whatever's going on at the time. So maybe maybe two or three years ago, showing Cassavetti's films wouldn't have felt so characteristic of the times. For some reason, it felt right for this month. And Seymour Cassell passing away also kind of fed into that as well. Because, you know, when when a dude like that goes and, and he's so identifiable with a certain scene, you know, the scene in this case being, you know, Cassavetti, that we're like, oh, here it is. This is when we do it, you know? So, so even though we've been wanting to show all these Cassavetti's films for probably, I don't know, at least a decade, it just, you know, sometimes you're like, something happens, you're like, 
there's a chance right there. So yeah. here we are. How do you describe, and you've, you're originally from Nashville, mm -hmm. how do you describe Nashville to people who are not from here or, or mm. you know, if they're like, what's that like? Well, I think there's a lot of Nashvillians, and, and, and I'm not necessarily speaking directly about natives or, or really just people who've been here for a long time who bemoan all of all of these changes and all these things that we look at out our door, these new buildings popping up everywhere. To me, it seems like it's always been one long change, one long growth. Uh, Interstate 440 didn't used to be over here. It used to be a creek bed of some sort. It used to be a drainage area. Um, there, you know, that's one thing. Um, I grew up near Green Hills. Green Hills was a, a couple of strip malls, it felt like, compared to what it is now. Um, so I don't take as drastic a view on it, although maybe I'm taking a little bit more. <laughs> maybe, maybe lately it's gotten a little bit amped up, but um, uh, I kind of feel like all of the changes have, have come into to place in a, in a certain way that's, that doesn't yeah, we every time a every time an old building goes down, we use we lose a little bit of a, of character. But in my mind, I go back to an argument we were having over 20 years ago, where everybody was saying, "Oh shit! Well, look, we're, if we keep growing out and expanding, we're going to turn into the next Atlanta." At the time, Interstate 840, which was supposed to run an entire circle around Nashville, about 30, 40 miles out, that actually. The I think now maybe my maybe my memory is skewed on this, but I feel like at some point we as a city decided, all right, we're not going to do the sprawl thing. 840 construction stopped. It literally stopped it. It only does like a partial semicircle around the town. Never got completed. As a result, that decision, which was a conscious one, was like, well, we need to build up from the inside and become a more a more uh, central city where where people actually live downtown. Well, that's kind of what's come to pass. So nowadays, with a, in all of this construction, everything you see is, I be, it seems to me, directly associated with the decision not to become a sprawling disaster. You know, the, the desire to be able to drive from one end of the city to the other in you know under forty-five minutes is still I think possible in certain times of the day <laughs> whereas you know to not to drag Atlanta through the mud because it's a city that I really like but it you know it's so big it takes forever to yeah. you you know and, and there is a theater like the Belcourt in Atlanta and it's uh, kind of down there near the five points area and if you live you know if you live in uh, you know outside of town it's gonna take you forever yeah. to get there so I mean, I'm not sure if that directly answers what your question was, but um, if, but to say that it, uh, your question was how would you describe Nashville mm -hmm. these days, correct? Or, or in general, I don't know. I mean, I think there's still a lot. It, it's just a laid back place, you know. I mean, the the fact that it, whoever in the whoever publications keep deigning as one of the friendliest cities in the in the country, I, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, that all seems pretty spot on to me. I mean, I'll, I'll cuss a motherfucker in traffic just as much <laughs> as the next guy. But, uh, but um, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's still a, a great place to live. And even though it's going through a lot of growing pains right now, it's, it's, 
there's still a whole lot of charm and a whole lot of soul here. Yeah, I think I said as much to Jason Sean in my conversation with him is that, like, the first drama in the movie Nashville, like the first bit of drama in the movie is Haven Hamilton telling the session musician Frog, you know, cut your hair, you don't belong in Nashville. <laughs> so like, like the very first thing, the very first piece of contention you hear is someone determining like what new, Na- what of wrong about new Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't know if Frog was part of the old new Nashville or not, um, but he did have a nice head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of people in that movie that had a nice head to hair. Yeah, so I mean, where where does Haven Hamilton draw the line? He's got himself some big sideburns. Yeah, I mean, you remember the line? You know, was it with the line from The Simpsons where uh, Montgomery Burns tells Don Mattingly to trim his sideburns? <laughs> trim those sideburns, hippie. <laughs> Well, I think that that's a perfect uh, ending point. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thanks to Jesse LaFontaine for all things related to sound post-production. All of the music in this episode uh, is by various artists, and you can see who by checking out our website. Um, And each episode has a show-specific illustration provided by my long-term friend, long-time friend, that's a funny way to describe a friend, Tim Burns, who's an amazing illustrator. A lot of great episodes coming up, Black History, Queer History, um, more from Veronica, who you heard from before. We have conversations about music here. We have a lot going on. So follow us in all of the places, subscribe and do all that. It really does help us. Thanks again for everything. Nashville Demystified is presented by Knack Factory and we own this town.